going to let you take over and uh, carry on with, with Danny, and we'll see you in 50 minutes. Excellent, excellent. That's Thank fun. you, for Judy. We will. We're all going to have fun. And a quick reminder to everybody out there, if you do have a question, you're welcome to put it in the chat section. And as uh, time uh, arises, we'll hit Danny with it. Of course, Danny, if you recall from last year, the first EPAR Trade Industry Week, one of the best presentations, we got very deeply into the chassis sim technology. And I it was there that I learned a, a little bit about you and your career. And I went back and saw some of the books that you've written and you have genuinely devoted a lifetime of energy to this. And now chassis sim in many ways, the culmination. I'm very excited to see what we're gonna learn here today. Excellent, excellent. Well, Joe, thank you very much. Well, and also too, thanks, uh, thanks again to Francis for that rather praiseworthy and eloquent introduction. Um, for a split second, I almost forgot who you were talking about. Um, <laughs> uh, but okay, guys, so what we're gonna talk about today, so let me just share my screen, so stand by. I'm also gonna share sound as well, because I've got some videos to share with you all. So we've got that. Can everyone see, uh, can everyone see my screen? I can see it. I don't okay, know cool. else, but I've got it. All right. Awesome. Also, too, guys, just a little bit of admin here. Um, because of where my webcam is and uh, where my monitor is located from time to time, you might see me go up. Uh, you might see me go up like this. Don't take it personally. I'm not trying to be an Uber nerd. It's just where the screen is located. So we put that under vexatious IP issues. All right. No worries. Okay. So are we all good to go? Is everyone set? We're all good. Everyone, can everyone hear me? Can everyone see the screen? I am ready to roll and uh, our, our panelists in the chat section appear to be ready. Okay, perfect, perfect, perfect. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this um, uh, EPA, uh, this session presentation for EPAR Trade. And um, it's um, such a thrill and such a privilege to be back with you again um, uh, this year. So what we're gonna talk about today is probably one of the most looked over subjects in um, race car simulation and race car engineering. And that is engineering for, for, uh, for both performance and um, drivability. And where the motivation um, for this presentation came from today is I worked um, on a job for a, um, I worked on a job uh, uh, for a, um, a customer, um, a, a very, very big one who, and I've been signed up to, the, uh, to NDA some to the Wazoo about um, uh, this job. But there were certain things that went down with this job that I just figured uh, uh, that that were some real light bulb moments and uh, and some really big lessons were learned. So really, this is pretty much the crux of what we're going to be presenting today. So to set the scene, if we take a look at when we're talking about race engineering, performance engineering, anything that you do um, with making a car go fast, um, the two things that you're always going to be talking about are grip and handling. It's the two major things, whether you're, uh, whether you're an SCCA, whether you're an IndyCar, whether you're a NASCAR, whether you're in Formula One, they're the two things that you will all uh, uh, that you will always um, talk about. Now, most race car simulation packages focus exclusively on grip, and I've got to admit, on this one, guilty as charged, Your Honour. Um, and the reason that we've primarily focused primarily on grip, almost to the expense of handling, and we're going to talk about this shortly, is that look, we in automotive have have typically done a pretty piss poor job of, um, quanti uh, of um, quantifying this. But today we're really going to address that and address that um, 
in um, uh, spades. Now, as I said before, I worked on a job this year that really required not just the performance elements to be in place, but the handling elements in place. Because bottom line, what I was dealing with um, was a full-on fire uh, was a full-on fire-breathing monster. Um, so, what we're going to talk about today is the key lessons that got learned from um, that job in terms of tying together performance and handling. But I'm also going to take the opportunity to speak. Uh, I'm also going to take the opportunity um, to talk about uh, about some lessons that you really should be applying in simulation and some tips and tricks and um, traps for young players. So let's get started. So first things first, a quick community service annou the announcement about who I am, what chassis CME is. Um, so pretty much you've got a large number of simulation toolboxes. And these, these vary from lap time simulation, shaker rig, track replay, and um, driver in the loop. Now, chassis CME has been used in formulas as diverse as LMP1, P2, IndyCar, F2, NASCAR, V8 supercars, DTM. And for those of you who are going to be tuning into the time attack um, uh, presentation right uh, um, at the conclusion of this, chassis sim has also been used very heavily in um, time attack as um, well. Now, the thing that chassis sim brings to the, bar, uh, to the party is its ability to reverse engineer tire and aero models from race data. That is an absolute key capability because when it comes to race engineering and uh, performance um, uh, simulation, look, pretty much everything that you can do on a race car, you can pretty much measure on a set of pads using a tape measure and a ruler. Now, look, if you want to get cute, you've got things like um, KNC rigs, um, you've got things like shaker rigs, but pretty much you can get to about not about 80 to 90% of the story, um, you know, using a decent setup pad, set of rulers, tape measure, couple of scars, pretty easy. However, what Chassis brings to the party is to combine this and using the race data, uh, uh, using race data to fill in the blanks of what you don't know. And basically, those two gray areas are invariably always going to be tires and aerodynamics. And Chassis has got that ability to help you fill in that black uh, to, to fill in those blanks. Now, the thing about Chassis Sim is, at its core, is a full fire breathing, twenty-one state, multi-body vehicle dynamic model. So, what that means is the thing that makes Chassis Sim unique is it transient simulation throughout all of its toolboxes. We are talking uh, the track replay, the shaker rig, driver in the loop, and the lap time simulation. The code commonality across all of that, when you get into, when you dig into the numerical engine, is about 1995, um, is about 1995%. And honestly, it's more just to, uh, and, it's, uh, and those code differences are more just to customize it for what it, has, uh, for what it actually has to do. So what that means, it can deal with situations like this. So what we've got here is that you've got, um, so this is the lap time simulation. You've got speed, you've got steered angle, you've got throttle, and here are your front and your rear tire loads. Notice how those tire loads are bouncing around. What that means is that you're going over a bump. To quote a colleague of, uh, uh, to quote a um, IndyCar colleague of mine, this takes chassis him well beyond the ability of just simply doing Wings and, gear, uh, uh, wings and gear ratios, it opens up so much more that you can do with it. And when it comes to transient um, uh, lap time simulation, we were the first to market and we, are the, uh, and we are the industry standard. Now, in terms of what chassis sim delivers, when you have done your job right, um, when you've gone through, you've measured the car properly, you've calibrated the data appropriately, you've gone through in systemized fashion and put it all together, this is the correlation you should be expecting. Now, actual is colored, Simulated as black. So what we've got here 
is that you've got um, is that you've got uh, speed, throttle, front dampers, rear dampers, steered angle of the tire, lateral G, longitudinal G, front and rear roll. That, folks, is the end point of when you have done your job properly. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the results of um, the lap time. Uh, uh, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is the results of the lap time um, set, uh, of the lap time uh, simulation. Now, to sort of um, set the scene um, for our discussion today, and this is a, a slide I presented last year, and I think, even though strictly speaking, it's not related to what we are going to talk about today, I think I really wanted to ram this home um, for completeness. So what? So, uh, 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 so what does race car simulation tell you? So what we've got here is correlation between um, super speedway, uh, 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 some super speed, uh, speedway stuff of actual versus simulated. So again, actual is colored, simulated is black. So what we've got here is we've got speed, steered angle, front pitch, which is the average of um, the front dampers, and rear pitch, which is the average of the rear dampers, and we've got lateral G and longitudinal G. So we've got decent correlation except for the rear. Now, most people at this point take one look at the rear correlation, throw their toys out of the pram and throw a temper tantrum. Um, now, what this is just showing, and this is where you've got to look at simulated data with slightly a bit of a different lens. What this is just showing you is there's a hole here in the error map and it's your job to chase down what that hole in the error map is. And that really rams home the point that what a simulator is, it's a calculator, it's not a magic wand. And I really want to ram that point home because part of my, one of my big bugbears in this business is that everyone's obsessed with the latest tweak, the latest magic wand. There's no, guess what? They don't exist. Um, if you're serious about performance, it's about using tools like simulation, um, like CFD, which Ray Leto from Total Sim presented last year, as calculators to help you understand your race car. And I really want to ram that point is, and to be quite honest, if you're after magic wands, I can tell you right now, I actually don't want your business because quite frankly, you're going to be more trouble than what you're worth. Um, so moving on. Okay, let's talk about the two main currencies of a race engineer. All car performance, it boils down to grip, and it boils down to stability. And the following is a perfect case in point. This is the last time that Ayrton Senna crossed the start-finish line. This was Imola, May 1994. So what we've got here is the Williams FW16B versus the Benetton B1, uh, uh, the Benetton B194. Now, on paper, Ayrton Senna should have had a magic carpet ride to his fourth world title. Um, it had uh, the the Williams had the um, engine of the field. At that time, uh, the Renault V10. Um, it had um, the best aerodynamics on the grid that produced the most downforce, albeit, and there's going to be a butt here for a very, very narrow band <laughs> of um, for a very narrow band of ride height, and um, and um, it had clearly um, the greatest F1 driver of all time. But here's the thing: that car, that blue car there, had been designed for active suspension. What that meant is the aero only worked in a very, very narrow band of ride height. So in August 1993, the FIA in their so-called infinite wisdom um, decided to ban active suspension. So you had what was an active car all of a sudden being thrust into being a passive car. And so this was a car that had incredible Jekyll and Hyde, um, uh, Jekyll and Hyde handling. And indeed, um, Ayrton Senate race engineer David Brown once said, um, that for the first three races of the 94 season, 
the Williams wasn't on pole, Anton Senna was. Um, now, in the background, the car that was chasing him was the B194 driven by Michael Schumacher. Now, this car was in terms of straight line speed, I think down something like 20k an hour on the Williams. However, from the ground up, this was designed as a passive car. It had not just great grip, but great handling, which allowed Michael Schumacher to compete on level terms with Anton Senna. And this really rams home the importance of what we're going to discuss today. Now, in order to talk about race car handling and how we quantify uh, 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 race car handling, we need to have a pretty serious chat about how we quantify this. Because make no mistake, when it comes to quantifying race car handling, we in motor racing do a pretty bad job of it, and OEM does a pretty uh, and OEM does a really piss poor job of it. And um, uh, the reason uh, and the reason is that we tend to throw out terms like understeer, oversteer. Yeah, you know, she's loose, she's tight. We throw these terms around like frisbees. And here's the thing, what we're describing when we're talking about things like that, we're talking about the end result. But what we don't know is what actually gets us to that end result in the first place. And the thing that drives that end result is that moment arm between the center of the lateral forces and the center of gravity. It's put in, um, in um, aerospace, uh, um, in aerospace um, pilots, this is called the static margin. And what the stability index does is the stability index basically takes this concept of the aerospace longitudinal static margin, applies it for automotive use, and non-dimensionalizes it um, uh, by um, the, uh, the vehicle wheelbase. That is the stability. Uh, 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 that is the stability index, and that is ultimately the thing that's going to drive whether you whether you've got understeer, whether you've got oversteer, and whether the nut behind the wheel can actually hang on to the car. This is the money shot here, right here. Now I know for a number of you tuning in, you might be a little bit freaked out by it. Um, in um, chapter five of my book, The Dynamics of the Race Car, I actually go into great depth as to why this is um, uh, the case. But again. As we go through the presentation, you're going to see the evidence of this, so bear with me. Okay, so what do all these values mean? Less than zero, the car is stable. If you give it an input, it ain't going to swap ends on you. If it's equal to zero, if you give it an input, it's just going to keep on going. If it's greater than zero, this is when you give it an input and it's swapping in. These are the, this is typically where the driver um, soils their racing overalls, comes back into um, uh, pit lane and starts referring to you in rather negative terms. Okay, so rough rule of thumb, the thing that sorts out the Lewis Hamiltons, the Max Verstappens, the Jimmy Johnsons, the Scott Dixons, um, your, um, your AJ Foyts from your mere mortals is they can tolerate a car with very, very low values of stability index. They're the things that sort of separate your superstars, um, from, uh, 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 your, uh, your superstars from driving Miss Daisy. Um, now, a rough rule of thumb, a good value of starting stability index is about minus 0.05 to minus 0.1. Um, and rough rule of thumb, too, you get the occasional excursion to about 0.1. But again, we'll talk about the significance of that shortly. Right, so quantifying this. Now, one of the things that we talk about in race car engineering is the lateral load transfer at the, at the front. It's also called the magic number. And again, it's one of these th things that Tends to be thrown around. Um, uh, that tends to be thrown around a little bit like frisbee. Um, it first started to got. Uh, it first started to got to get used around about the mid eighties and really sort of um, took a life of its own um, in the mid nineties. Now, if you 
uh, now what the lateral load transfer means is the percentage of load transfer on the front axle. Now, if you plot that versus tire grip, you get a curve that looks like this. So typically, and this is, the, this is for an F3 car, you've got about 21 or 20, 20 to 21,000 newtons worth of force with a variation of about 1,000 newtons. Or so. so that's about a variation of about plus or minus 1,000 newtons. But where the real magic of the magic number comes in is how it varies the stability index. So as you can see, up here, sure, we had a bit of variation, but not a lot. Here, all of a sudden, we've got really big changes in stability index. That's the thing that the driver is going to come back to you and start screaming blue murder or be really happy about. And that dance of tuning the stability index the driver can cope with and maximizing that grip, that's the dance that we dance as race engineers performance and, uh, and performance engineers uh, and performance engineers that is the dance that we uh, that is the dance that we dance and i often refer to, to this as um the uh, mechanical uh, as the mechanical grip balance equation now in terms of quantifying this and putting numbers to this this is where we need to quantify our race tire now um that's beyond the scope of our discussion today however um, for those of you who are interested, I would refer you um, to the Chessin blog post, um, uh, Tire Modeling from Nothing. For those of you um, with a search engine, just search um, Chessin Tire Modeling from Nothing. It will be the first result that comes up. Now, the real key to nailing this is every uh, the nail here is to quantify, we can quantify this. And the key to quantifying this is knowing that in any thermal uh, condition, a tire can be nailed down in terms of the load at which it produces its peak force. So typically you've got the initial coefficient of, uh, of friction times your peak load divided by two and your peak load. Those two variables there really allow you to nail down um, uh, the racing tire. Now, I could, I could probably give a seminar on its own right about um, the significance of this, but let me give you the really, really quick elevator speech. This tells you so much about the soul of not just the racing tire, but where you go with setup. So let me give an example of this. If, you're, if the load that you're seeing on track is only about 50% of the load at which you're going to, which the tire is going to generate its peak grip, that is telling you, you want low roll sensors, you want low pitch sensors or low values of anti-dive and anti-squat, you want stiff spring and bar rates and stiff damper rates. Why? You've got a tire that needs to be muscled to get it up to temperature. Conversely, if we've got a, um, uh, if, we, if our um, peak tire loads on track are about 70% of the peak tire load where we generate our peak grip, as a rough rule of thumb, that is telling you high roll sensors, high um, pitch sensors or high values of anti-dive, anti-squat. Um, and it's also telling you soft spring rates, soft damping rates, soft bar rates. Why? You've got a tire that needs a lover with a slow hand um, and needs to be, uh, be needs to be treated very gently. But the thing about it is that little curve there allows you to fill in the blanks of uh, uh, allows you to fill in the blanks of this. This is why it is so very important. Now, what does that stability index look like through a corner? So, what we've got here is an example of a um, Formula Three car. Um, where we've got the base standard F3 car and we've moved the arrow balance forward about 5%. The colored trace is the standard. The black trace is where we've moved the arrow balance forward by 5%. So this is the results of the lap time simulation. And this is 
pretty much, and this is pretty much a high speed sweeper where we just basically roll the car um, into the corner. So what we've got here is that you've got speed. So you've got a little bit of difference there. You've got steered angle. Now, obviously, because you've moved the arrow balance 5%, you've got a little bit less um, steering lock, but not massively. We're going to talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about the significance of that um, in a little while. Um, you've got minor difference in throttle application. It, you've got minor changes in terms of um, grip, but where you're going to see a big change is the stability index. So the standard was about minus 8.7%, moving the arrow balance forward by 5%. That gives us a stability index of about minus 5%. That's the driver, because I guarantee you, you put in, you've got a baseline F3 car and you move the arrow balance 5%, Forward, that's the thing the driver is going to come back to you and say, my word, that's a huge, huge, huge difference. And the thing that's driving it is that delta instability index. Now, the great thing is that we can actually incorporate this in chassis M. Now, the way that we do this is um, we basically have a setting in chassis M um, under the inertial properties where you've got driver stability index. Uh, we got driver stability settings, and you fill in this stability index table versus um, speed. So what this is is this is a corner multiplier. What happens is the chassis M figures out um, the maximum uh, performance of the car without due regard for man, woman, child, or beast. Um, and then what it then does is it looks up what the stability index was and looks at the uh, and looks at where it falls with this multiplier. So if you've got a car that's if you've got a car with a very low value of stability index that's going to be really twitchy um, under corner, uh, um, uh, that's going to be really twitchy at the mid corner, you can now take that into account with that multiplier here. Conversely, if you're dealing with a car that's under steering like a pig, it will also penalise that as well, and you can tune that to um, what the likes of um, uh, to um, what the proclivities of of your driver. Now, in terms of what this looks like in terms of um, um, your results. So what we've got here is I ran two simulations, one with an F3 car, the other one with a V8 supercar around a um, uh, 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 around Queensland Raceway um, that's based in um, uh, uh, that's based um, in Queensland, Australia. The place itself is a uh, it's a big one. The place itself is a bit of a dump, but it's a good little test circuit because you've got a bit of everything. So. As you can see with the standard case with no stability index correction, we've got our baseline, we've moved the arrow balance forward by about 5%. That's dropped the lap time by about 0.1 of a second. The arrow balance back by minus 5%. So the error, uh, so the performance is going, to be, uh, is going to be suffering and all your various other bits and pieces. When we turned on the stability index correction, a totally different ball game emerges. So indeed, one of the great criticisms that's often leveled at lap time simulation is that as you start moving the arrow balance, um, as you start moving the arrow balance, um, uh, for, uh, as you start moving um, the arrow balance forward, what happens is the lap times just get better and better and better. Um, but the problem uh, now, the thing about it is, yes, the car is quicker, but the problem is, it's becoming more and more on. Uh, it's uh, it's it's becoming more and more undrivable. This is where the drivability starts kicking, and with the stability index correction on, you can see with the arrow balance at plus five percent the lap times are penalized quite heavily. Why? It's a lot more oversteering, and we saw that through the stability index. Ditto with the arrow balance at minus 5%. Again, a further penalty, A, we've lost grip, but we've also lost handling as well, so you've got a double whammy there. Ditto with the rear bar being um, uh, uh, being um, moved um, 
from 1200 newtons per millimeter to 600 newtons per millimeter. Um, you can see you've now got a 0.3 of the second penalty. And with the rear spring going from 900 pounds to 800 pounds, you've got a little bit of a penalty, but, um, uh, but not a lot because it's a much finer chain. Now, when we did that to the supercar, what you could uh, 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 what you can see is that number one, you had relatively small, uh, relatively smaller changes. Again, favoring oversteer, it got a little bit quicker. Again, that track does like a car that can uh, that can poise around. However, once we turn around, uh, turn on the stability index, again, a much different picture. So anything that would promote oversteer, and that was due to the nature of um, the stability index factor used. Again penalizes the car a lot more. So this now opens a much wider window of parameters that you can now put in. So now you've actually got a very firm basis of which you can um, uh, uh, predict um, race car um, ha uh, uh, race car handling uh, race car handling with. So that's part one of the story. Part two of the story is enter chassis in driver in the loop. And really we're now getting to um, the crux of what motivated um, uh, this presentation in the first place. So as I said before, I was working on a job this year that was a car that was a fire, uh, that was a fire breathing monster. Unfortunately, I have to be extremely tight-lipped about um, uh, what uh, this, uh, I have to be extremely tight-lipped about what this car um, is because I'm signed up to NBAs up to the wazoo about this. However, what was happening was that because this car had so much downforce and so much run, I basically took what I thought was a good baseline, and it was starting to push. Uh, 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 and uh, when I was testing this around um, Eastman Creek and Chassis and Driver in the Loop, I was getting into turn one that should be for a high downforce car. You just turn in, hang on the throttle, and you and you don't even think about it. Every time I was turning in, the car was swapping in. Why? What was happening? Uh, 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 what, uh, uh, um, uh, what was happening is that all of a sudden we were starting to push into very unstable um, behavior um, of the car. Uh, of the car. And let me leave the punchline for this momentarily with what I'm about to show you. Okay, so um, uh, so what we did was um, I took a look uh, looking at the lessons I learned from that job, and I said, okay, can I get repeatability here? Is there going to be is there a common trend here? So what I did was I took um, the um, LMP2 um, uh, uh, the LMP2 plus card that was the basis of last year's Chess Sim Online Race Engineering Competition. And I knew that car, that, that car had really borderline stability. Indeed, when we did the driver in the loop section for that, it was the one thing that the driver really did um, struggle with. So what we uh, so what I did, I just figured, okay, um, let's move the error balance um, back about 5%. So as we can see here, the color is the baseline. The black is moving the error balance back about 5%. So what we've got here is we've got wheel speed, you've got Steered angle, and again, we've got a slightly, uh, we've got slightly more steering lock for the black uh, uh, for the arrow balance being moved back by about five percent, and a little bit less lateral G. But if we take a look at the stability index, which is this last trace down here, going through turn one, the car is absolutely the car is absolutely borderline stable, and I mean borderline stable. It's going to go. It's going to basically go at you pretty much um, almost at, um, at will. But with the aero balance of 5%, we've now moved the static margin back from about um, minus five to zero to minus 10 to uh, uh, about minus 10 to um, minus five. And I figured, okay, 
That's interesting. Let's park that for the time being. Then what I did was I said, okay, can I get repeatability with the F3 car? So what I did was I took the standard chassis sim template, ran it at Eastern Creek and ran it across driver in the loop. So the, the baseline, you know, um, which is um, colored was about um, a stability index of about minus 3.6%. Um, so what I then did is say, okay, what can I do to move this so the stability index becomes zero? So I basically just kept moving the error down forward and I got um, an error balance of about 10%. The car is now, stability index is now zero. And I figured, okay, now we've got these two data points. Let's run this in chassis and driver in the loop. Now, my apologies in advance if the videos here are a little bit delayed. Um, um, there's also, and I've also done a YouTube tutorial on this. So if it's a little bit delayed here, you can chase up that, uh, that YouTube tutorial on the Shaftesian YouTube channel. So let's take a look at um, the LMP2 baseline. And I'm not gonna go full screen so that we don't get that much of a screen delay. So going into turn one, this is with our LMP2 baseline with our model line. So as you can see, it's a little twitchy going into turn one. Um, so a little twitchy. Now we're gonna go into the exit. Now I've got a bit of a tank slapper happening. Going in and whoa, whoa, whoa. Go tank slapper, all sorts of problems. Let's now take a look at that aero balance being moved backwards 5% on that LMP2 plus car and see what we're dealing with. So coming into to, uh, uh, so coming into turn one, coming in a lot more settled, no twitching, no nothing. We're now going to go into one um, turn two at Eastwick Creek, solid as a rock. Turning in, go not doing anything nasty on you. That's just me being an idiot getting on the bottle too early. Um, but again, all solid, nothing particularly outrageous. Let's now take a look at the F3 car. So here's our baseline. So coming into turn one, we whack it in. No huge dramas, pretty stable, etc., etc., etc. Going into um, ditto, uh, under brakes into um, turn two. So pretty much, no, uh, you know, pretty much all one of the more stuff. Let's now have a look at when we've moved the error balance forward by about 10%. So coming into um, uh, uh, coming into um, turn one and going in, and we've got the tank slapper happening. Um, uh, so you know, this is basically when the race car driver basically stalls themselves. Um, and, uh, you know, and ditto, you know, not good at, you know, not, not good at, not good at all. Actually, around here, this has been taking a little bit This is now when the, uh, when the speed really cranks on and woohoo! Uh, that's basically fresh laundry, but uh, that's basically fresh laundry material. However, here's the nail. Um, uh, uh, here's the nail, ladies and gents. Uh, the nail here is, We were able to use the stability index from the lap time simulation to predict what was going to happen with driver in the loop vis-a-vis -vis that point where we were going to go between something that we could hang on to and not hang on to. So we take a look at that bottom straight here. We've got minus 3.6% for the F3 car. When we moved our aero balance forward by 10%, it was going to be really marginal. And we saw that in the video. 
going back to the P2 car, again, you've got the color trace, which is the P2 car is standard on the bottom here with the stability index. So here it's going, it's really, really marginal. And with the error balance now moved back by about 5%, all of a sudden we can hang on to it. And we've been able to use the lap time simulation to do this. And this is really key for that job because when I just went through, so I just threw some stuff out of the random just to see, hang on, what's going on? But then when I went back and looked at the stability index panel, you could see once it was going into turn one, the stability index was just going off the scale. And that's why I couldn't hang on to it. And that folks is how you can use your lap time simulation to really help you nail down what's gonna happen with your race car handling. Now, in terms of some rough rules of thumb. Now, um, a lot of this is gonna be dependent on engine power, and that's down to two reasons. Number one, the limitations of the stability index calculation in chassis sim as it is right now. Um, I do have something in there. I have um, formulated um, stability index for, um, uh, for um, mixed, uh, uh, you know, for both longitudinal and lateral applications, I just haven't had the time to implement it. So here are some rough rules of thumb of where you need to be looking in terms of your stability index when it comes to driver training in, um, uh, uh, when it comes to um, tuning, for, uh, uh, tuning for handling. So if your engine power is about 170 kilowatts at the wheels or about 220 horse, give or take, um, your superstar will be able to cope with about minus three to minus 4%. Your average driver, minus six to minus 8%. Your bad driver minus twelve to minus um sixteen percent. Once you're moving to an engine power of about four hundred kilowatts or so at the rear wheels, or about um, five hundred or so horse, you're looking about your superstar will cope with about minus five to minus seven percent. Your average driver will cope with about minus ten to minus twelve percent. Your bad driver is about minus sixteen percent, and your engine power over. 600 kilo, uh, uh, when you're talking 600 kilowatts or about 750 horses. Your superstar will cope with about minus eight to minus 10%. Your average driver is about minus 12 to minus 14%. And your bad driver is about minus 3%. Again, these are some rules of thumb, but the real takeaway here is that you can now use the lap time simulation and know uh, and look at the stability index values and know that's going to give you great confidence to know that's going to translate to what you see in the real world. Because as we saw with those few videos, you can see a really clear correlation between what you were doing with the stability index and um, what you were doing with driver in the loop and that in your ability to be able to hang on um, to um, the car. So that's something that's incredibly powerful. So that being said, let's now talk about the simulation approach now that we've got this to hand. So the first thing you do with the simulation approach is step one is you sort out your mechanical and aero setup. Now, the great thing about the lap time simulation is it'll allow you to sort out things like your aero, spring, bump rubbers, rod heights, gear ratios. That stuff pops out really quickly. Once you know that, you can then use a little Excel sheet combining a very simple time model to allow you to tune in the lateral load transfer distributions that you're, uh, the lateral load transfer distributions that you're after, in particular, that balance between handling and that balance between grip. It's a very, very powerful tool. And again, it's um, in that link, um, the chassis sim time modeling um, uh, from nothing. Once you're done with that, 
you then get on to uh, you then get on to um, sorting your dampers. You start with a quarter car damper model. Why do you start with a quarter car damper model? It's simple. It allows you to be numerous about what you're doing with the dampers, and that's where. And once you've got a base set up, that's when the chassis shaker with toolbox becomes your best friend because it's such a powerful tool um, to help you sort through um, your damping options. And this is something that I speak about. Um, at length um, at uh, uh, in um, on the Shasim um, uh, YouTube um, channel. I also talk about it at length in the Shasim boot camps. Once you've done, uh, 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 once um, you're done with that, um, you then um, go through and um, look at um, your lap time, uh, uh, your lap time simulation and driver in the loop. And in order to do that, you really have to understand the race engineering process. So it starts with your driver feedback. You then take a look at what the data has told you. You then take a look at your lap time simulation, and then you move on to driver in the loop. Bottom line is that the lap time simulation helps you sort through the options. The driver in the loop will determine if those options are drivable. And indeed, one of the things that we that I really learned in the chassis driver in the loop development is one of the things I found really beneficial is that when I would be giving changes to driver in the loop, I would actually be standing next to the driver, just seeing what they were doing. And that was actually a really great um, educational experience for me because it allowed, it gave you red flags to go through when I looked at the data so I could make sense about what was going on. Okay, simulation traps for young players and some tips and tricks. Okay, first things first, setup, uh, uh, setup sweeping. Use this with extreme caution. Now, don't get me wrong, setup sweeping has its place, but the big trap that I see young engineers fall into and I see the big end of town, like F1, NASCAR, IndyCar, and um, factory LMP1 fall into is that they'll just use setup, uh, is that they'll over rely on setup sweeping. Here's the thing you've got to stick with the parameters that you model, and you always stick to within plus or minus 30% of your base setup. Anything beyond that, you're uh, anything beyond that, you're just, uh, um, uh, you're, uh, um, you're, uh, you're just guessing. So really keep that in mind. Now, the other thing too, DIL. Okay, a couple of disclaimers here because the problem with driver in the loop, um, Briggs, is they've they've become the next in uh, they've become the next magic bullet. But there's really some key disclaimers here. Number one, this ain't going to be for everybody. In order to make use of driver in the loop and to make use of this properly, you've got to possess what I call the RC aviation gene. These are the the ability in your to take visual cues. In, uh, figure out what the plant's doing in your head and then figure out what to do with the driver controls. And make no mistake, not every, not every race car driver you'll deal with will have that ability. And indeed, I would actually have to say that the fool's paradise um, that everyone tried to chase with driver in the loop was thinking this could be for everyone. It's not going to be for everyone. Um, and, to, uh, and, and to presuppose this is going to be for everyone is a little bit like thinking that denial is a river in Egypt. The other thing too about DIL is it's not a magic bullet. And indeed, one of the great fall downs of driver in the loop is everyone thinking this is a magic bullet. And make no mistake, while it's a great tool, it's not a magic one. And for the love of God, do not fall into the President Camacho trap. And what I mean by the President Camacho trap is um, this is a screenshot of the movie Idiocracy that um, uh, translates what happens in 500 years time when all the smart people stop reproducing and all the idiots keep reproducing. And so an average army um, private wakes up 500 years later 
and he finds out that he's the smartest man in the world in this. And, um, and he wakes up into, into a world where for decades, everyone has been spraying crops with Gatorade and they wonder why it's not growing anymore. And President Camacho gets in front of everybody and say, we got this guy, not Sean. He's the smartest man alive. He's going to fix the plants. He's going to fix the economy. He's going to do it all in one week. If that is your attitude with driver in the loop, you're wasting your money. It just simply is not going it, to, it, you will be doomed to, um, to perpetual disappointment. The other thing to really flag here too is that simulated changes will always be smaller than actual data. Reason one is the nature of the tire model. Reason two, a, a, a simulator chassis in particular is the terminator. It knows exactly where the group is. It does not know pity. It does not know fear. And it absolutely will not stop until um, it's achieved maximum grip. So consequently, when you go through and take a look at simulated data, you'll have very small changes in steer angle. You'll have very, very small changes in throttle. Um, but um, where the change show up is in cornering speeds. And that is a key difference between looking at um, simulated and actual data. Now, in terms of um, the setup parameters you need to be working with, and I think this is actually, we in the race car simulation community have been very, very guilty of this. Because typically what we do is that we give you great correlation that I refer to as simulator form. Um, we then um, uh, go through and uh, everyone gets really focused about correlation. And then they go off and use the simulator, plug in all sorts of silly numbers in it and wonder why the results don't tally up on track. Okay, so here's some rough rules of thumb when you're getting started. Spring rates are going to go about plus or minus 20% of the base setup. You keep damping ratios to known values of the base setup. Why? Because if you go beyond that, you're A, you're going beyond the area that you haven't modeled. And number two, if you get out of that window, the um, tire temperature effects start to become very, very radically different. And even when you've got tire temperature modeling um, um, turned on, you can still sort of, sort of fall into this trap. Um, that being said, you can lean on your damper changes, stick your bars to within plus or minus 30%. Your geometry is about plus or minus 20%. Also to start from a well-known model and modify to suit. You do not get any brownie points for showing how intellectually brilliant you are. Lastly, some conclusions and food before, before I turn it over to Q&A. First things first, and the real nail of today is what you see in the lap time simulation for stability index will be reflected in driver and the, uh, uh, will be reflected in driver and the lift. Now, sure, they're going to bounce around with um, the engine power that you want. But the real nail here is that you can now be very, very deliberate about how you specify race car handling. And that is so key because so much of what we do in this business is like, oh, yeah, I feel it did that. I feel it did that. That's great. If you want to feel of that, that go that, um, yeah, go to a touchy feely church, hold hands and sing kumbaya. Um, but um, uh, but what we're talking about now is what we've discussed with the stability uh, with the stability index. It's correlation to what it's done to driver in the loop. It now gives you the ability to engineer the car as opposed to guessing, and that, folks, is an absolute game changer. So. At that point, let me conclude the formal part of um, the presentation. And Joe, I'll turn it over to you for the Q&A. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much. And uh, can you read me? I've got you around clear. I've got you loud All right, clear. good. I'm not hearing myself back to myself. So if anybody out there has a question, I, I find it to be very interesting that 
Uh, you can go through this process. And there was so much that you said, Danny, that it, it, you're taking something that is kind of an unknown and trying your best to quantify it in the software so that people can at least test, right? They can at least uh, uh, figure out. Now, much of it is over my head, but that is why we have got the Q&A session for Danny. Uh, Danny, you talked about engine power, though. How does this... Um, how does the software software uh, uh, affect that? You know what I mean. Like okay, so basically, engine. Research. What you're seeing there, engine power is a. What you're seeing there is a net result of the fact that, particularly for rear-wheel drive, is that with engine power is that you're asking the rear tires to both corner and do traction at the uh, do corner and traction at the same time. And because of the fact that you've got basically pretty much your available grip is pretty much a traction circle. Um, so you know if you're trying to ask the tire to uh, 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 to do both ridiculous amounts of traction and cornering at the same time, not going to work, which is why with those values of um, the stability index, you're actually shifting them backwards um, uh, with um, increasing level of engine power because you needed to have the tire actually needed to have excess grip um, so that um, when um, uh, the driver gets on the happy pedal, um, he doesn't actually, uh, uh, the car isn't going uh, to swap ends. It's a fundamental limitation of the tire. How much time should be spent using the software uh, in relationship to track time or- Right, great question. Great, great question. So typically this is where I go through. So pre-event, what I will do is um, I'll go through, do my vehicle modeling. And make no mistake, with your vehicle modeling, you're gonna need about three or four bytes of the tray or three or four different circuits to get it right because you need to populate the tire model from different circuits. So typically what I do is that Pre-event simulation is I'll go through, I'll both make sure that I've got my correlation all squared away. Now it doesn't have to be absolutely exact. Um, and I talk about that um, in one of the Chassis YouTube channels in um, terms of um, how you um, look at um, simulated, um, how you look at simulated data. But once you've got that done, that forms your frame of reference so that when you go to a test, when you go to an event, you're already pre-prepared. So you've got, the, your test plan of, of stuff you wanted to, tr to, uh, to test, you've got that whittled down. Once you've whittled down, go to the track, go through, sort through the data, do your, uh, you, do your, um, you do your business on track as is. Now, um, if you've got really good computing resources and you've got a dedicated performance engineer, yes, they can use simulation if you need to ask some very, very um, uh, you know, quick questions. For example, I had an IndyCar customer whose performance engineer would actually be feeding stuff from chassis in to the race engineer in real um, time. But typically, this is where you're focusing on um, the race engineering of the car. You're looking at the data, you're correlating that against um, uh, what it's, uh, uh, you're correlating that against um, uh, what, uh, what you're doing. Once you're done with that, and the session is done, um, you, know, you look through the data, you debrief with the driver, that's when you crank out the simulator to figure out, okay, is there anything that we missed here? Is there anything um, uh, uh, that's, uh, uh, that's, uh, that's not adding up? That's when the simulator comes back to it at, uh, at um, the track. I mean, if you've done your job really, really well, typically what tends to happen is the simulator tends to stay in the background um, at the track. That being said, it's also a great teaching tool um, for um, the driver as well. All right, here's a question from Deanne. Is the $5 per online uh, simulation, uh, what would you recommend for amateurs? Oh, absolutely. That is why that online simulation was created um, in the first place. It was created as a very, very affordable 
um, way to allow um, to allow club races, SECA races, to access a tool like Shaftesim without breaking the bank. Um, so, and typically we've got a number of options. If you're really, really technically literate, I mean, typically you just um, buy the simulations, and typically on your first simulation, we get when you buy your first simulations, like I'll typically throw you about a hundred or so, under uh, hundred and fifty or so cents, so that you can get up to speed. Um, so, um, uh, so then, and typically for an event, you're typically going to be talking about um, twenty to thirty cents on the lap time simulation, another twenty to thirty cents um, on um, on um, on um, driver in the loop. Um, so um, that is um, your uh, so that basically is um, uh, that um, uh, situation. So yeah, so typically you'll be spending about one hundred and twenty-five dollars odds to two hundred and fifty dollars odds per event. Um, and yeah, and so that regards, I think for um, for, for your SCCA runners, your amateurs, this is something that I highlight. The online simulation is your natural price point. And, and I think that's something we need to spend a little time on. Like, all right, people understand that it's a useful tool, accessing the tool, getting assistance, accessing the tool, learning to work with it. Um, how do you handle all of that? And for people- Funny you should, uh, so funny you should ask. There are multiple resources we've got to handle that. Number one is the Shaxim YouTube channel. There are 120 tutorials there of me talking about all aspects of vehicle dynamics, all aspects of chassis sim, et cetera, et cetera. So that's step one. Step two is the Shaxim boot camps. Um, so I run those um, twice a year where I actually walk you through a work example um, about how you go about and walk you through the Shaxim workflow. Um, and typically day one is um, I'm working you through the Shaxim process. Day two is that you're working on Shaxim with myself or my colleagues looking over your shoulder, making sure you're not doing anything silly. Got it. Got it. And so for people out there who are interested, the best way to go to you and to uh, begin the journey is to go to the website, chassisim.com. Correct. Excellent. Excellent. Now I notice you do some uh, modeling for Formula E. I wonder uh, electric power versus combustion. Does that, change, <laughs> does that change the simulation? Not really. Um, look, the thing about it is, I mean, look, here's the thing about electric. Look, the number one, the, the huge difference between when you go electric racing and you go internal combustion is that with electric racing, it, you know, because your energy densities are so marginal, um, you spend an awful lot of time talking about those compromises between post regen, um, it's a, 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 a between um, post um, regen, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing, uh, the other thing too, is that because with electric engines, because the torque is so instant, um, you will play around with things like the torque maps, so the driver, um, uh, so the um, uh, so the driver doesn't freak out. But when you're talking about engineering for max performance, whether we're talking um, uh, the um, Neo or the Nurburgring or um, the uh, Volkswagen IDR Pikes Peak, um, there's an awful lot of that when you when you're focusing on max performance. Um, you know, the um, the performance is virtually, I, I mean, the, the process between internal combustion versus electric is virtually identical. Very interesting. Very interesting. I see Francisque and Judy have joined us once again. Uh, lady and gentlemen, I am way more educated than I was 50 minutes ago about uh, chassis dynamics, certainly, and uh, how to solve problems, thanks to Danny. I know our audience is as well. Danny, thank you so much. That was an excellent presentation. No worries, guys. Not a problem. My pleasure. And guys, uh, uh, great. Uh, and uh, 
Joe, Francis, Judy, uh, really great to see you guys again. Um, I hope you have a fantastic week. Um, unfortunately, I have to bail because um, I'm getting hammered here on uh, multiple. Uh, I'm getting hammered here on uh, multiple fronts. But uh, one final parting word, guys, uh, for those of you who are tuned in, got any questions at all? Look, um, uh, email us at info at chatsim.com. I mean, look, I mean the, the chat window. Uh, look, don't bother with the chat window terribly much. I mean, that's just more there for general punters who just, uh, um, you know, who just more just um, uh, doing some casual fishing, but. Anyone who's tuned into this presentation, shoot me an email at info at um, if you're interested and we can get you all sorted. And guys, you have a fantastic um, rest of the week and really enjoy the um, next presentation on um, Time Attack. It's probably my favorite formula to work in. The concept for EPAR trade is basically, in my opinion, there's a big hole in the internet. So the internet started many years ago, but there's never been an online business community for racers on the World Wide Web. The need for EPAR trade is actually quite obvious. Basically, people in the business of auto racing need a place online to hang out and get their problems solved. It's extremely simple for a buyer or for a supplier to interact on the platform. The first thing you need to do is sign in which is free. And the second thing is, when you see a product that you're interested in, all you need to do is click on request more information. If it's a company, you click on request more information. And then from there, it is forwarded directly to the buyer or to the supplier. You can go to epartrade.com, you become part of a community of businesses in racing. And it makes uh, sourcing products much easier than just on the internet or using Google. At ePartrade, there is no e-commerce. It's literally a connection just like at a trade show. So now, any time of the year, a buyer could reach out to a supplier through an email. More than that, it's a place to go just to keep current every day. So it's a good place to start your workday in your racing business or in your offices of your professional race team. And you know you're current when it comes to new technology, industry news, technical papers, technical videos, all of that and more. We're not looking for a million hits per day. All we want is people who are really the volume buyers of racing products in the racing industry to be part of the little world of EPART trade. We have racing businesses participating from around the world. So you get suppliers from around the world, you get buyers from around the world. EPART trade really eliminates having to travel, closing down your shop. Now you have a place to showcase globally your racing product and technology. There are two types of people, racers and everyone else. Racer Magazine is for those who believe that racing is a way of life. Racer embodies the excellence that defines a sport driven by passion, courage, and ingenuity. Get one year of both Racer's print and digital edition for only $39 with instant access to our entire digital issue archive. Subscribe now at info.racer.com.